This is Dr. Jay Corsandi, and you're listening to The Best Night Ever, the show that's dedicated to helping you get your best night's sleep. Over the last 20 years of treating patients, I've worn many hats, including dentist, engineer, psychologist, artist, corporate executive, and more. I found that the key to success, health, and longevity lies in sleep, and that's why I created this show. I want to teach you how to make sleep your best friend. Join me on a journey to uncover cutting-edge science, life-changing tips from renowned experts, ancient and modern sleep secrets, game-changing routines, and lifestyle hacks that will educate, inspire, and ultimately help you get the best night ever. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Best Night Ever. And this one is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a solo cast, so you are stuck with me for the whole episode. Now, speaking of being stuck with me, I can tell you a quick story about how this show started. Uh, Back in the day, this was actually a radio show. There was a local station here in Los Angeles that was looking to fill a time slot on Sundays for an hour show based on sleep and health and they reached out to me and I said sure why not so we decided to start recording shows that would air over the weekend at this radio station and once I started getting the recorded files we turned it into a podcast and 60 episodes later we are here now. So I'm super excited about this show because we're going to be talking about sleep and myths and things that you may have thought were true things that are true, and things that have a twist to them. And this show is brought to you by me, yes, your friend, The Sleep Biohacker. So if you want to support the show, you can go over to sleepbiohacker.com or on Instagram, I'm at sleepbiohacker. Uh, You can reach me via DM or email. And I'd like to mention that I have a new website called viasleep.com. It's viasleep.com. And that's where I'm focusing more on one-on-one coaching, better sleep through telemedicine therapies, working with you directly. Feel free to check that site out as well. It's called viasleep.com. It's brand new. And if you want to work with me, if you're having troubles with sleep, especially snoring or sleep apnea, we can work together and come up with some solutions. So I'm super excited to share that with you. Other than that, if you do enjoy the show, if you're a long-time listener, thank you. And if you're new, please check it out. Let me know what you think. And if you do like it, please help out with a review or a share with a couple friends. It's super easy to do on your phone. You hit a few clicks and someone else will be able to benefit from this information as much as you have. All right, well, enough talk about that. Let's get started with the show. And I want to start off with a brief recap of sleep throughout the ages. We're going to start out with the Neolithic era, and this is around 10,200 BCE. These are our second oldest and most ancient relatives just after the Paleolithics. And they went to sleep a couple of hours after dusk, and not exactly when the sun went down. Why, you may ask? Well, there weren't any city lights, no Wi-Fi, no cell phones, but there were predators, which meant going to sleep exactly at sunset presented a risk of being attacked, which no one really wants. But the difference between this group and our Paleolithic predecessors during the Stone Age is that this cohort tried to make their bedtime space more habitable. Instead of just using heaps of straw to lay on the ground, they began to move off the ground by making raised beds. Now, several thousand years later, around 8,000 BCE, 
As you can imagine, the rate of technological advancement was still slow. And in their era, and researchers found, people sleeping in more circular rooms, which suggested they slept in a more fetal position. All right, we're going to fast forward to the 1300s to the 1600s. And as we entered the Middle Ages, populations were growing and people were living closer to each other, which made sanitation an issue. Even the wealthy were not immune to the smell and filth as there was no plumbing. Think about that. Well, the good news is, is as we progress over time, things get better generally. And we're going to move over to the Renaissance period. And when we think of Renaissance, we think of art and culture. This period experienced a revolution in bedding as rough cloth and straw mattresses were now covered with velvet and silk, which added an air of luxury. This is also the time when biphasic sleep was at its peak. This was the time to have a first and second rest period during the night while experiencing a peaceful wakening segment in between. Instead of feeling concern over being awake during the middle of the night, citizens during this period would use this time for prayer, reflection, sex, chores, reading by candlelight, and even visiting friends. How crazy is that? I know so many people reach out to me with a problem that they can fall asleep, but they end up waking up a couple hours later and they have no idea what to do. Well, maybe we should start meditating and reading by candlelight and visiting friends during this time. Who knows? Maybe it'll be a new trend for 2021. Except visiting friends might be a little difficult with all of this social distancing stuff going on. All right, well, we're almost done with this brief trip through the history of sleep, but we're going to fast forward to the 19th century. And with the invention of the light bulb in 1879 by Thomas Edison, sleep was about to change forever. As the Industrial Revolution and the desire to work, work, work pushed on, people started ditching the idea of two sleeps at night. And by the 1920s, all reference to a biphasic or segmented schedule entirely ceased. Which brings us back to to monophasic sleep, which is going to sleep and waking up through one solid block of time. Although it doesn't seem like that happens for many of the people out there, especially the ones wearing trackers and wearables that show multiple wake-ups throughout the night, but we're going to get to that later. At this point, what I wanted to do is talk about some myths associated with sleep and some science behind them. Speaking of myths, what are some myths that you remember from your childhood? How about the one that said, wait an hour after eating before you go swimming to prevent cramping? Or we only use 10% of our brain. Or this one really made me freak out. If you swallow gum, it will stay in your stomach for seven years. And you always remember your parents saying, if you go outside with wet hair on a cold day, guess what? You'll catch a cold. People are always asking me about sleep myths. So let's review some of the most common ones that I've received. All right, well, let's start with this one first. Have you ever heard this one that says adults need five or fewer hours of sleep or that you can function with that little sleep? Well, researchers reported in the Journal of the American Heart Association that, quote, objective short sleep duration predicts the all-cause mortality prognosis of middle-aged adults with CMR, which is cardiometabolic risk factors, and the cancer-specific mortality prognosis of those with CBVD which is cerebral vascular diseases, which basically means if you're the type that wants to, quote, sleep when they're dead, you'll probably be dead sooner than your cohorts. Okay, this is one that I get on an almost daily basis. People come and see me and they say, you know what, 
I don't have a problem with sleeping. I can fall asleep anywhere, anytime, no issues. Now let's look at that one because being able to fall asleep anywhere, anytime is not a good thing. There is something called sleep latency and you wanna take about 15 to 20 minutes to drift into sleep and hitting the pillow and going to sleep instantaneously is a sign of exhaustion. And we're gonna break this down into two types, physical exhaustion versus burnout or psychological exhaustion. Let's start with physical first. And in my case, the patients that I see that are physically exhausted are the ones with snoring and sleep apnea. And they're the ones who are stopping breathing 20, 30 times an hour, and they're just not recovering at night. And guess what? That's going to tax the system on so many levels. And these people are just spent and beat by the end of the day. And they're the ones that fall asleep instantaneously when they hit their head on the pillow, or if they're riding as a passenger on a car, or if they're in a movie theater watching a movie. These are the people you know who are out, passed out at parties as well, sitting on a couch. And it's a major problem. And it's easy to spot generally because they're not sleeping well. You can hear it. Family and friends can hear it. And the good news is, is that that's a fairly easier one to handle. The trickier one is psychological burnout, which is a psychological syndrome characterized by emotional exhaustion, feelings of cynicism, and reduced personal accomplishment. In a study published in 2018 on sleep and burnout, they found that, quote, besides reporting more job strain, higher levels of anxiety, and sleep disorders related to insomnia, participants with burnout presented higher levels of HbA1c which is a measure of how well controlled your blood sugar has been over a period of about three months, glycemia, or blood sugar levels, CRP, which is a marker for inflammation, lower levels of D25OH, which is your vitamin D, higher number of leukocytes, neutrophils, and monocytes, and higher total cholesterol. In particular, when HbA1c was greater than 3.5%, which is still relatively low, the prevalence of burnout increases from 16.6% to 60%. Incredible. All right, we're going to move on to another one here. And this is a myth that I've heard before. Your brain and body can adapt to less sleep, aka how can I sleep less and get more done? In a famous sleep study experiment, people cut down their sleep to just six hours a night. And researchers found that their cognitive performance and reaction times dropped as much as they did in people who went two full nights without sleep. They also found that their bodies didn't adapt to the new sleep schedule, even though the short sleepers were mostly unaware of their poor performance. And you're going to love this one here. This other study, researchers found that moderate sleep deprivation produces impairments equivalent to those of alcohol intoxication. Yes, after 17 to 19 hours without sleep, performance was equivalent or worse than that of a blood alcohol concentration level of about 0.05%. And after longer periods without sleep, performance reached levels equivalent to a blood alcohol concentration of 0.1%. And just for reference, most states set their DUI limits at 0.08. Okay, this one's near and dear to my heart. Snoring, although annoying, is mostly harmless. Now, we've all seen cartoons and movies of the guy sitting on the couch or laying in bed, and the universal notation of sleep is those Zs showing that they're snoring. And people like to laugh about it and make fun of it. But the actual 
reality is that snoring is red flag. It's kind of like a canary in the coal mine because if you are snoring, you're producing airflow. You can get things like hypopneas, which is a reduction in airflow, or apnea, which is blockage of your airway and reduction in oxygen, increased stress level markers throughout your body, inflammatory processes are upregulated. It's really a nasty situation. And on top of all that, if you have a partner or spouse, people who are affected by snoring on average lose an hour of sleep per night as well. So if you're already pushing seven hours and now you have to deal with someone who's snoring next to you, which I call secondhand snoring, you're going to be put into that six hour range, which we're going to get to a little bit later in this show, but that's really going to mess up with your health. All right, let's move on to another myth here. Drinking alcohol before bed helps you fall asleep. Good old nightcap, right? And how does coffee play into all this as well? Well, alcohol is the most common used sleep aid in the U.S. 20% of Americans say they drink to sleep. And this was a while ago. I can only imagine that that number is way higher now considering the pandemic and people being at home and stressed out. So alcohol may aid with sleep onset due to its sedative properties. It is a CNS or central nervous system depressant, allowing you to fall asleep more quickly. And furthermore, as alcohol is metabolized, it increases extracellular adenosine levels by both inhibiting adenosine uptake into the cells and by increasing adenosine production, which fools the brain into thinking we should be going to bed. However, People who drink before bed often experience disruptions later in their sleep cycle, both because of the actual liquid volume or maybe having to go pee later at night, and brainwave disruptions and loss of earlier rounds of REM sleep from the effects of the alcohol. What about coffee, you ask? Well, speaking of adenosine, caffeine looks a lot like adenosine on a molecular level, And caffeine binds to the adenosine receptors, essentially blocking adenosine out. It doesn't let adenosine do its inhibitory things, and we end up pushing back the sleep drive. That's why coffee keeps us up and alert. So why is that a problem? Well, instead of slowing down our brains because of the adenosine effect, the nerve cells speed up. Caffeine also causes the brain's blood vessels to constrict because it blocks adenosine's ability to open them up or vasodilate. Let's take it a step further here too as well. Caffeine has a half-life of about six hours. So someone who consumes about 90 milligrams of caffeine, that's about a cup of coffee in the morning, will have 45 milligrams remaining in their systems after six hours and still another 22 milligrams after that. Which means if you have a regular cup of coffee at about 8 a.m., then you'll still have about 25% of that caffeine in your system at 8 p.m. So that's something to think about. All right, lastly, this myth is we get a lot less sleep than our ancestors. And this is for the people who argue that modern life has reduced our sleep time below the amount that our ancestors got. So according to researchers led by Dr. Jerome Siegel at UCLA, which is my alma mater, yay, they studied the sleeping patterns among traditional peoples whose lifestyles closely resembled those of our evolutionary ancestors and found that in the industrialized world, sleep habits do not differ much from those of our pre-industrial forebears. They looked at the sleep patterns of the Hadza, 
the hunter-gatherers who live near the Serengeti National Park in Tanzania, the Tsimani, which are hunter-horticulturalists who live along the Andean foothills of Bolivia, and the San, which are hunter-gatherers in the Kalahari Desert of Namibia. So one myth dispelled by the results of this research is that people in earlier times went to bed at sundown. But what the researchers found was that the subjects of the study stayed awake an average of nearly three and a half hours after sunset. Also, they discovered that most of the people slept less than seven hours each night, clocking an average of six hours and 25 minutes. Now, I agree that this amount is on the low end of sleep averages documented among adults in industrialized societies in Europe and America, and I would have loved to have known why it's so low. Is it because they are extra healthy? Hmm. And something else that was interesting in the study was the amount of time they slept varied with the seasons, less in summer and more in winter. Which makes sense to me from a circadian perspective because obviously days are longer, nights are shorter in the summer, and days are shorter and nights are longer in the winter. Plus there's probably some energy ramifications in this whole thing as well. Well, it's that time where we're going to wrap this show up, and I hope you enjoyed this little journey down sleep lane and myths and debunking some things that come across me on a day-to-day basis in terms of how we sleep, why we sleep, what's right, what's not right. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about this show. You can leave comments in the descriptions of the show on the podcast platforms that you're on, reviews. You can also DM me on my Instagram at sleepbiohacker.com or email me on my webpage, sleepbiohacker.com. And just like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you want to work with me on a one-on-one basis for sleep coaching or sleep treatments or therapies or sleep apnea or snoring, you can check out my new website, Via Sleep. That's V-I-A-Sleep.com. And that's an easy way to learn more about me and my services. And I'd love to work with you and help you get better. As usual, this show was brought to you by me. And like I mentioned before, if you can write a review or share it with a couple of friends, my goal is to continue to get you great content and guests and your support helps tremendously. And that's it for now, folks. Thanks for listening. And I hope you do have the best night ever. This broadcast is for informational purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this show are not medical advice. The show, including Dr. Jay Crisandi, the co-host, guest, and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of any information contained herein. Opinions of the guests are their own. We do not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests, nor do we make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. If you think you have a medical problem, please consult a licensed physician.